Take your Bibles, if you would, please, and turn me to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6 is where I'd like to direct your attention. We are going to read from verses 25 through 34. This is a very well-known passage of Scripture, but it's one that bears reading repeatedly. So Matthew chapter 6, verse 25 is where I'd like to begin uh, as we look into God's Word this morning. You follow along in your copy of the Scriptures. I'll read from the New International Translation. Matthew 6.25 says, Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. It's not life more than food and the body more than clothes. Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any of you by worrying add a single hour to your life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow? They do not labor or spin, yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not even more, uh, much more clothe you, you of little faith? So do not worry saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all those things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. So today we're going to talk about worry. And as a model for how we're going to talk about worry, I take up this passage in which the Lord Jesus issues this command in verse 25, do not worry. And then he grounds that command in the providence and the mercy of God the Father. That's the model I'm taking for what we're doing this morning. I'm not sure how much you have thought about this, but the Bible talks about worry and fear and anxiety in dozens and dozens and dozens of places. There are admonitions, there's commands, there's exhortations, there's pleas, there's models, all of them addressed to this issue. You should put worry in the list of those big sins that the Bible talks about a lot. Pride, anger, lust, greed, Why are there so many words about worry in the Bible? Because this is a temptation that we all face. The scripture was given to God's people and God knows, oh, he knows how tempted we are to this. Um, Worry, it it comes, it, it arises in the hearts and minds of God's people with the regularity of the sun. It's a constant source of trouble. And we should be honest, even as we begin here, you have a lot to worry about. I, I can think of things, good reasons why you have to worry. For one thing, you're not getting any younger. Um, with each passing day, your body is getting less predictable and less reliable. Is it going to hold out? Or what do you do if it does hold out, but your mind fails? Is anybody here worried about that? If your mind fails, eventually you'll stop worrying about it. It'll be fine. (laughs) On the other hand, if if that's not what you're worried about today, some of you have financial pressures coming. And and they're only going to get worse. 
Does your budgeting process ever feel like you're trying to protect a sandcastle on the beach that you built too close to the water? And the waves keep coming and coming and coming. You can't afford that 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 baby that you're about to have. Trust me, you can't afford it, him or her. Uh, And then eventually in the time, that child is going to need braces and is going to want to go on the band trip to Hawaii. Why are they always in Hawaii? (laughs) Why not York? York would be a fine place for a band trip. Maybe they're going to want to go to college, that child. One hopes that you will be able to pay off your own college loans before your son or daughter starts taking out their own. It's the hope, right? And then there is your mortgage, your retirement. I know you don't have enough money for retirement. Some of you, I have a strategy for you. If you increase your cholesterol intake, maybe your heart and your bank account will hit zero at the same time. It's the goal, right? Perfect goal. Some of you spend time worrying about your relationships. Uh, Will you ever get married? Most relationships are always in flux, right? You know this, your relationships are always in, you are always either moving toward or away from people. There's just this natural flux and, and, and you worry when you're drifting away. So is that a good enough list to start about the things that you worry about? Your health, your wealth, your friendships. People worry about these things. Uh, They worry about their jobs. They worry about their kids. They worry about the weather. They worry about Kim Jong-un. They worry about the economy. You have a lot of good reasons to worry. In addition to that, Jesus said, in this world you will have trouble. No one's ever put that verse on a plaque. At least that part of it, right? He said, now I know the verse continues, right? Be of good courage. I have overcome the world. That's plaque worthy. But I, that, that first part is a big hump to get over. You're gonna, you are going to have trouble. You will have trouble in this world. And what's perhaps even worse is in this passage, Jesus tells us in chapter 6, despite this long list of good reasons that you have to worry, the problem actually is not ultimately out there in the world. The problem with worry, my real problem with worry, your real problem with worry is in here in your heart. I know that because verse 25 begins, therefore, therefore do not worry. He's building on what he's just been speaking about. And what he has just been speaking about is a lot of heart trouble that we have, heart problems. We won't go through these in in great detail, but in verses 19 through 21, he warns them about misplaced treasures. Do not store for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal. Verse 21, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be. One wonders if perhaps your problem with worry is the fact that every single one of your treasures is here on earth. And if that's true, every calamity is a threat to what you hold closest, what you hold most dear. Misplaced treasure. It gets worse in verses 22 and 23. He talks about internal darkness. Jesus warns us about this internal darkness. Your body's filled with darkness. Your life is because you have an eye problem. Your gaze is, is focused. It's filled with the wrong things. And then in verses 24, uh, verse 24, the problem is divided loyalties. No one can serve two masters. So we have these 
treasures that are out of place and we have this internal darkness and we have this divided loyalties. And in light of that, Jesus then turns to worry. Worry is more of a statement about you than it is about your circumstances. In other words, it's possible to live a perfect life, a life that is free from any pressure. If you could come to me this morning and say to me, here are my list, my top five list of worries. Here's the top five things that I'm worried about. And if I could, by some great power given to me, remove all five of those threats with the snap of my fingers, you still may be a worrying person. It is also possible to live a relatively impoverished life, an impoverished health or wealth or friendship life, and still be content. That's still possible because worry is not really an, a, a manifestation of your circumstances. Worry is a manifestation of your heart. So the answer that Jesus provides to this worry question is found in the nature, the providence, the promises of God the Father. The reason that we're talking about that particular topic today is because we are slowly this summer working our way through Grace's doctrinal statement. We've already taken up the first couple sections of it. We talked about the Bible and we talked about the Trinity. And this morning we're going to talk about God the Father. Now, summary statements, like our doctrinal statement, are almost as old as the church itself. Uh, the early such, uh, earliest such summary that we have of what we as Christians believe is called the Apostles' Creed. Some of you may have grown up in church where you quoted the Apostles' Creed on a regular basis. We do it regularly once about every five years in our worship services. And, and Christians have been saying it for hundreds of years. We believe in God the Father, the Almighty. Uh, God the Father, Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. So last week we were thinking about the Trinity, and that's hard work to think about the Trinity. Uh, the Trinity is a, it's a wonderful mystery. Uh, it's, it, it, it blows all the circuits of our mind, the things that we're familiar with. Fred Sanders wrote a wonderful book about the Trinity, and he said that evangelicals in the United States are more Trinitarian than they realize. They're more subconsciously Trinitarian. That is, we sing Trinitarian songs, and we pray Trinitarian prayers, and we have Trinitarian doctrinal statements like ours. So today we're going to talk about God the Father, section 3. Uh, in a few weeks when I'm back, we're going to talk about God the Son, section 4. Then we're going to talk about God the Holy Spirit, section 5. We have a very Trinitarian Doctrinal statements, wonderful. But today our focus is the Father. What we're going to do is we're going to read what our doctrinal statement says about the Father, and then I want to use it and the scriptures that lie underneath these truths, and I want to give you five reasons why you should turn from worry. Uh, you have a lot of good reasons to worry. You have better reasons not to worry. So let's read the doctrinal statement together. It's on this green sheet that's in your bulletin. You might, it might, will be helpful for you this morning because there's a lot of verses on there we're going to look at. But let's read this, and then we're going to talk about why you should turn from worry. All right, let's read this. We believe in God the Father, an infinite personal spirit, perfect in holiness, justice, wisdom, power, and love. He concerns himself mercifully in the affairs of humanity. He works everything in accordance with his perfect will, though his sovereignty does not eliminate nor minimize human responsibility. God's foreknowledge is exhaustive and not dependent on human decisions and actions. 
We believe He hears and answers prayer and that He saves from sin and death all who come to Him through Jesus Christ. Oh, beloved, I don't want you to worry as much as you do. Brothers and sisters, I I, I think you should push back against the worries that constantly arise in your mind and your heart. And here are five reasons why. All right, number one, we have a heavenly Father. We have a heavenly Father. So Father's Day is next week, so I imagine you're you're giving yourself some time to think about this subject uh, more uh, now than usual. But but God as Father, this is how He preeminently introduces Himself to us in the book in the Scriptures. In the book of Exodus, He says that Israel is My Son, and I am Israel's Father. In the book of Samuel, God says to David, David, any uh, you and any of your descendants, I'm, I will be their adopted father. Uh, Jesus, when he taught us to pray, taught us to pray, Our Father who art in heaven. Now, a lot of people think that the phrase Father, the title Father, is one that God has taken to himself because human beings have fathers and that you're supposed to think about your human father and on the basis of your thoughts about your human father, then think about God the Father, that you're supposed to move from the relationship you have to the relationship that you can have with the Creator. Uh, But that's actually not right. Uh, See, the Bible teaches that fatherhood originates in God himself, that God is the first and preeminent father, and the rest of us are just very poor copies of him. So uh, listen to Ephesians 3, 14 and 15. I'm going to change the translation a little bit. Um, But look what it says. For this reason, Paul praying, I kneel before the Father from whom every family, or more literally, all fatherhood. For this reason, I kneel before the Father from whom all fatherhood in heaven and on earth derives its name. Fatherhood is born in the heart of God. He is the first and preeminent Father. Fatherhood is derived from Him. It's formed from His character and His nature. He is the ultimate and first Father, and we model our fatherhood on Him. Now, if that's true, oh, this is depressing. And I turn to my doctrinal statement. This doctrinal statement, look what it says about God. By virtue of fatherhood on earth as a copy of the model of fatherhood in heaven, what this means is that your father by God's design is meant to be the best living human example of holiness, justice, wisdom, power, and love. Uh, That's just a tremendous challenge, right? If if a man is worthy of the title Father, he is walking in step with God the Father and he is, this is his chief calling, his highest responsibility before his children to be the ultimate example, the, the living human embodiment of holiness, uprightness, wisdom, power, that is authority that it's used really well, and love. So how does your dad measure up? Oh. Uh, fatherhood is something that can be incredibly beautiful, and it is something also that can be horrifically toxic. A couple of years ago, uh, Ray Ortland, who pastors a church in Nashville, Tennessee, wrote an article uh, about his father. And listen to what he said about his father. 
In public, my dad was one of the great pastors of his generation. He served most notably for 20 fruitful years at Lake Avenue Congregational Church in Pasadena, California. In private, my dad was the same man. There was only one Ray Ortland Sr., an authentic Christian man. The distance between what I saw in the New Testament and what I saw in my dad was slight. He was the most Christ-like man I've ever known, the kind of man, the kind of father I long to be. He was the living embodiment and humanity of holiness, justice, wisdom, power, and love. Then uh, Ray Ortland, we could benefit from reading the whole article. I will not do that. But he lists 10 lessons he learned from his father. Let me just read a couple paragraphs here. Lesson number one, he said, he was never too busy. My dad was a busy pastor, but he was never too busy for me. When he felt he hadn't had enough time with me, he'd say, hey, bud, want to skip school tomorrow and go down to the beach? It didn't take me long to agree to that. So off we went. We surfed and talked and had fun together. The next day, he'd write a note to the school to explain my absence. And when I took it to the principal's office, they always marked my absence unexcused. (laughs) I guess the reason didn't count with them, a father wanting to catch up with his son. But dad didn't care. I mattered to him and I knew it. Here's lesson number four. He cheered me on. My dad set me free to pursue God's call on my life. He guided me in appropriate ways, of course, but he did not fearfully cling to me or hope I would always live nearby. Just the opposite. He urged me to follow Christ anywhere. Now and then he'd make this speech. Listen, son, half-hearted Christians are the most miserable people of all. They know enough about God to feel guilty, but they haven't gone far enough with Christ to be happy. Oh, that's a line worth repeating. Half-hearted Christians are the most miserable people of all. They know enough about God to feel guilty, but they haven't gone far enough with Christ to be happy. Be all out for Him. I don't care if you're a ditch digger as long as you love the Lord with all your heart. He also wrote this. Many Many men are hard to read. I have no idea what they stand for, but I never wondered about my dad, what he cared most about, what he was living for, never once at all, not even a little. He did not take a keep a low profile approach to life. Jesus was too wonderful to him. He praised the Lord throughout his life in public, in private, in a clear and winsome way that could not be ignored. Fatherhood has tremendous potential. See, you have in your mind, even as as we think about this, you have in your mind, because you do have a human father, you have in your mind an image, uh, you have an idea of how grateful you are for the father that you have. You have that this morning. That or this morning, you are thinking about, you're wishing about the life that you could have had, how your life could have been better or different if your father had embodied the holiness, the justice, the wisdom, the power, and the love. Uh, included, written down in our doctrinal statement. Now take those thoughts, that gratitude for the father that God gave you or your longing for a different sort of father and want you to think about our heavenly father in those terms, in that way. He is perfect in holiness, justice, wisdom, power, and love. You don't need to worry Now, let's uh, move on here. There's more. Second, 
our doctrinal statement says that our Heavenly Father is merciful. He's merciful. So our Heavenly Father is merciful. The doctrinal statement says He concerns Himself mercifully in the affairs of humanity. He's merciful. There's a phrase that I use probably too much when I pray around the dinner table or sometimes in prayer meeting. I often give thanks to God for new morning mercies. Lord, I'm thankful to you for new morning mercies. I do it on the basis of this verse that's written down in Lamentations 3. It's very well known, you know this. Because of the Lord's great love, we're not consumed. For His mercies, or compassions, never fail. They're new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. By temperament, I am generally a pretty positive person. I wake up in the morning and I'm ready to go. Um, but sometimes, sometimes for me, and depending on your temperament, maybe a lot for you, uh, I wake up slow. So the alarm goes off and I think, I, I, I wake up slow, I'm weighed down by the memories of yesterday's sins and I'm frightened by the challenges of the day that are ahead. Has that ever happened to you? It, you know it's going to be a long day when your first thought, when the alarm goes off and you look at the clock, or your first thought when the baby starts to cry is how many hours it will be before you are done. And if it's a baby that woke you up, the answer is never. Right? You know what you need at that moment? You need new morning mercies. The doctrinal statement mentions the affairs of humanity. He engages mercifully in the affairs of humanity. God does not interpose himself in humanity to trick us or to manipulate us. He's not toying with us. This is how Greek and Roman and Norse gods lived. They, they toy with human beings. They trick them. They manipulate them. They, they experiment on them. They dominate. They abuse them or hurt them and belittle them. But God interposes mercifully to show mercy. Here's good news for all the worriers in the room. God has mercy on worriers. We'll come back to that in a minute. Reason number three why you should turn from worry. We're going to spend the longest period of time on this by far. Our Heavenly Father is sovereign. Our Heavenly Father is sovereign. Uh, this is probably, uh, this is a reference to the line from the doctrinal statement that I think I quote the most often. Uh, listen to what it says. He works, God works, everything in accordance with His perfect will, though His sovereignty does not eliminate nor minimize human responsibility. God's foreknowledge is exhaustive and not dependent on human decisions and actions. I think this is very well stated. I think it touches really well on the puzzle of how God's absolute sovereignty and human responsibility cohere. This is a significant topic. Christians have been talking about it for a long, long time. Uh, we're going to scratch the surface just a little bit. Here are some things I want you to think about. First of all, we need to recognize that the Scriptures affirm over and over again that God is sovereign and humans are responsible. The Bible teaches both of those things. And what's striking is how often the Bible affirms both of those things in the same passage. That's great. We're going to look at them. I have a list in my office of maybe 20 verses where this is true. We're not going to look at all 20 this morning, but here are some. So God's sovereignty and human responsibility affirmed together in the same passage. Genesis 50, 20. Joseph is speaking. He's speaking to his brothers who had betrayed him terribly. They come to him afraid because uh, they want to be forgiven or actually they're afraid that he's going to punish them for what they've done. And look what Genesis 50, 20 says. 
you intended to harm me. That's why you should feel guilty. That's why you're coming. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. By betraying their brother, these brothers did something that was grievously evil for which they deserved justice, but God was at work too. All right, Proverbs 16:4. The Lord works out everything according to everything to its proper end, even the wicked for a day of disaster. Now, if we had more time, we would spend some time talking about what this word everything means. I think it means everything, but uh, we could spend some time there. The Lord works out everything to its proper end, even the wicked for a day of disaster, God's sovereignty. He works out everything. But, look at verse 5 of Proverbs 16. The Lord detests all the proud of heart. Be sure of this, they will not go unpunished. So God is sovereign, He works out everything, but the wicked, the proud in heart, are accountable to God for their wickedness. Divine sovereignty, human responsibility, together. 1 Kings 8, Solomon is addressing the people. He's dedicated the temple. He says, May God, may He turn our hearts to Him to walk in obedience to Him and keep, to, and keep the commands, decrees, and laws He gave our ancestors. And then just a few verses later, verse 61, He says, And may your hearts be fully committed to the Lord our God to live by His decrees and obey His commands as at this time. So here's the question. Why will the Israelites obey God? Because God has turned their hearts or because their hearts are fully committed to the Lord? And the answer to that question is yes. And Solomon has no trouble putting the two together. Look at John 6:37. All those the Father gives me will come to me. Sovereignty. All those the Father gives me will come. And whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. Human responsibility. Uh, I love the Acts 13 and how this works here. This is wonderful. Acts 13:48 and then just a couple of verses later chapter 14 verse 1. So Acts 13:48. Paul's preaching, when the Gentiles heard his message, they were glad and honored the word of the Lord, and all who were appointed for eternal life believed. Ooh, their sovereignty. All who were appointed for eternal life believed. All right? Now, then just a few verses later, chapter 14, verse 1. At Iconium, Paul and Barnabas went as usual into the Jewish synagogue. There they spoke so effectively that a great number of Jews and Greeks believed. So why did people believe? Why did people come forward? Why did people come forward at a Billy Graham crusade? Because they were appointed for eternal life? Or because he preached so effectively that a large number of people came forward? Yes, is the answer to that question. Now, the cardinal principle here when reading the Bible is that we believe that the authors of the Bible were not maroons, right? that they were not stupid or fools, that they could write a paragraph and, and have the paragraph cohere with itself, that when they were writing something, they, they, they didn't intentionally and without noticing write two things that were absolutely impossible to go together at the same time. So Luke wrote this with a full understanding that both of these things are true. 
And if you don't have room for both of these things to be true, one wonders what the authors of the Bible understand about God and his sovereignty and humans and their responsibility that you don't understand, right? Hmm. The Bible doesn't have anything, any trouble at all putting these things together, divine sovereignty and human responsibility. They appear to, in the text over and over and over again. It's really, it's wonderful. Now, how, do, how should we think about this? Let me think about how we should think about this. Wayne Grudem and John Frame, both of them uh, fine theologians, think that we should think about what is happening here in terms of an author and his story. So God is the author and we are characters in the story that he has written. Think with me about uh, Macbeth. All right, Macbeth. Who wrote Macbeth? William Shakespeare wrote Macbeth. And in the opening scenes of Macbeth... Uh, King Duncan is murdered by his brother. Uh, his, his name is Macbeth. So I ask, who killed Duncan? Who killed Duncan? In one sense, Macbeth killed Duncan. His, he had motives. He had actions. He, his, his accountability is clear. He, he could be tried for murder. Macbeth should. But in another sense, Shakespeare killed Duncan. He wrote it into the plot. It was within his sovereign power as author of the story. He's not responsible like Macbeth is responsible. Shakespeare couldn't be tried for murder, but he's still the author of the story. That image, that image which is not perfect, seems to fit the text pretty well. God is the author. We are living out the story that he has written. Sometimes people object to this and they say things like, all this sovereignty talk seems to make us robots. We're just machines or puppets in God's plan. Well, there's two ways I, I want to respond to that. On the, on the one hand, um, that, that's not actually the, the way that we experience life. It's not the way that the Bible talks about freedom. The Bible tells us, and this is how we experience this, that human beings act out of their desires. That is, we do what we want to do. Uh, this is freedom. We, we do what we want to do. There's no sense in which human beings act contrary to what they want. You, you follow your heart. You follow your desires. You speak and you act accordingly. There are, now, there are outside constraints, right? I really want to fly. Not on a plane, but I mean, you know, like Superman, fly, right? I really want to fly. It's my desire. But there is a constraint called gravity, right? So I, I don't get to do that desire. I really want to drive a new car every week. Wouldn't that be nice? Every Monday morning to drive to work in a new car. You can try them all out. You can, you can, that new, you're, you're, you always have that new car smell. You can always be pushing buttons in the car to see what it does and how it works. It would be awesome, right? But I have a certain constraint on my behavior. My bank account constrains me so that I can't drive a new car. Also, that would be stupid, but I can't drive a new car every week. So I have, I have constraints, but even within those constraints, I do what I want. I live out of my heart's desire. God is sovereign, but I, I don't feel this sense of, of constraint. I, I, I'm free in that, to do what I want. Uh, Jesus writes about this in Luke chapter 6. He spoke about this. No good tree bears bad fruit, nor does a bad tree bear good fruit. Each tree is recognized by its own fruit. People do not pick fig trees from thorn bushes. Uh, 
are grapes from briars. A good man brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart, and an evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in his heart. For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. You live out of your heart. You live out of your desires. You speak and you act in accordance with what you want. You're not a robot in that sense. And actually we have here revealed, though, our great problem as human beings, right? Our, our nature, our hearts are desperately wicked. We're, the Bible says, wandering sheep. We're prodigal children. We're unfaithful brides. But we're not robots. Another way to address this if, if robots thing is, is if, if we were merely robots... God would just have thrown us away, and that's not what he did. The gospel itself is an answer to the robot problem. You throw things away. That's what you do with a machine that is as broken as we are. You get rid of it. Now, I know we live in Lancaster County. It's wonderful to live in Lancaster County. When things break in Lancaster County, we don't throw them away. We fix them. I make fun of my father-in-law last week. I talked about how wonderful he is with his hands and fixing things. My father-in-law has a snowblower from 1984 that he has kept running all of these years. He's incredibly skilled at maintaining these things. His weed whackers from 1988. He just maintains stuff. And he fixes things. And, and that's what we do, right? If, if things break, we fix them. Some of you spend hours and hours and hours fixing the things that you... And, and when you get to a point where you can fix them... You put them in your garage and some days hope that you would fix it someday. Someday I'll be able to fix this, right? That's what you do. Normal people outside of Lancaster County throw things away at that point in time, right? We are broken, broken. And, and, and that's what you would do with a robot that is as broken as we are. But that's not what God did. God came to rescue us. He became one of us. That's not what you do with a broken robot. This is the plan from the beginning, that God would take on himself, God the Son, a human nature, that he would live a perfect life, that he would die the death we deserve to die on the cross. The cross is a place, bearing God's wrath is a place where wandering sheep belong, where prodigal children belong. The cross is a place where unfaithful brides belong. But it became the place where the Lord Jesus went for us. By his death, he rescued us, and he offers life and forgiveness to all who will receive it by faith, all who will turn to him. God is sovereign, but we are not merely his robots. We are his beloved. I read it from Acts. So this morning, if you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus, I would invite you to turn and believe in him and trust him, recognize that he is the Savior who came to die for you so that you could be reconciled to God. If you do it, if you turn and believe today, it will be because, Acts 14.1, I'm speaking so effectively. <laughs> and it will be because God has appointed you and opened your eyes so that you see the wonder of the Lord Jesus. Oh. Now, we should think about this. A couple more ways that I want to think about this, this sovereignty thing before we move on. The sovereignty here summarized in our doctrinal statement provides a couple of things for us that, that are, are good and helpful. First of all, this is not just, I'm mentioning this because this is not just a problem to overcome. This is a truth to delight in. So it provides for us, first of all, comfort, comfort, uh, comfort for worriers. Do you ever worry about the people that vex you? 
Do you ever worry about the people who have troubled you, the people who have hurt you? Do you ever worry about them? They are responsible to God for the harm that they have done, and he will ensure that justice takes place. That's what this divine sovereignty, human responsibility, uh, cohering together does. It brings us comfort. God will ensure that justice is done. He is able to do so because he is sovereign, and they are responsible for what they have done. They are accountable to him for what they have done. This fall, just the other day, I saw an advertisement for a movie that's going to come out this fall. It's called Operation Finale. It's based on a true story. I don't know very much about it, but it's uh, the, uh, the true story of how the Mossad, the Israeli, Israeli Secret Service, captured Adolf Eichmann. Adolf Eichmann was the architect for uh, the um, uh, oh, World War II, the um, Holocaust. Terrible how your mind works. He, uh, Adolf Eichmann was the architect of the Holocaust, and after World War II, he fled Germany and uh, took shelter in Brazil. And this story is uh, the, the uh, Israeli Secret Service went to Brazil and captured him and brought him home to stand trial in Israel. In the commercial they saw for the film, there's this scene where one of the directors of the Mossad is talking to the team and, and sending them off, and, he, and they say to them, the, the man says to the team, this is our chance this is our chance to go get Eichmann. If you, don't, if you fail, if you don't bring him back, he will never face justice. Not here on earth and probably not ever. It's an interesting response. It's, it's somewhat hopeless, isn't it? That's not true because God is sovereign and human beings are responsible. You don't need to be as vexed, as troubled as you are by those who have troubled you because human beings are accountable to our sovereign God. That should bring you comfort this morning. The other thing that I think the structure of divine sovereignty and human responsibility also provides for us is motivation. Motivation. Here's another passage where, where these two things, sovereignty and responsibility, appear together. Look at Philippians 2, 12 and 13. Therefore, my dear friends, if you have, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Work for, why? It is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. That for is so important there. Work out your salvation because God is working in you. Uh, this past week, uh, actually last week, I volunteered at the Penn Manor 6th grade track and field day. Uh, this is the third time I've done it. I enjoyed it immensely. They asked for parent volunteers, and I show up. And I stood on the track. This is what I have done for the last three years. I stand on the track where the 6th graders who participated signed up to participate in the running long jump. Uh, they would uh, start. So I was at the starting line. They run down a track and jump into a sand pit as far as they possibly could. And I, I was responsible for telling us to go, you can go. So they were in a long line, all these sixth graders, and some of them, they came up to the line and they were ready to go. They were ready to go. Others were not so sure about it. So um, I would look at them and I would say, you can do it. Go. And they'd start running and I would look at them, look at them and I would think to myself, not that kid, he can't, nope. All right, now I'm not, try, I'm not trying to be cruel, all right? But to do the running long jump requires certain physical characteristics, 
right? That is a, a competition that's built for kids who are long and lean and fast and coordinated. And not every sixth grader is long and lean and fast and coordinated. And they haven't had time to train or practice at all. So they're, they're running, they're, that kid, ooh, there's no chance that all of them are going to be successful. I was trying to encourage them, right? You can do it. Try your best. Go, and down the track they would go. Now imagine how they would run differently if I had the sovereign power to speak into their lives. And when I said, you can do it, it would determinatively ensure that they could jump over the sandpit. Right? You can do it, and they'd fly. Would you run down the track any differently? Would it it keep you moving a little bit? (laughs) Shoot, go. I don't care how stupid I look at this point in time because I'm going to do it, right? I can do this. God says here, Philippians 2, run, run the race. You can do it. Work it out because God says so. God's sovereignty is motivation. It just comes to me now. I I should show you the verse. I can't remember where it is. It's in the book of Acts. I think Paul's in Corinth. And, and, And God says to Paul in a dream, stay here, Paul. Stick with it. Preach the gospel here, Paul, because I have many people in this city. What he's saying to them is he he says to to Paul, there are people here, Paul, who are going to believe. I guarantee it. So stay here and preach the gospel. It's motivation. God's sovereignty is motivation for evangelism because our words will not fall empty because God is sovereign. He'll open people's eyes and they'll turn and believe. It moves us. So his sovereignty and, and, and human responsibility is motivation. Now, there's two more ways that our doctrinal statement tells us and helps us not to worry. We're going to talk about them briefly. All right, number four, we have a Heavenly Father who answers prayer. We have a Heavenly Father who answers prayer. Here's the alternative to worry. God hears and answers prayer. Philippians 4, Paul sets this alternative before us. Do not be anxious about everything, anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God which transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Don't you sometimes plead with God for this peace? Don't you do that? seems to me that's very normal for followers of Jesus, to plead with God for this peace. John Guest uh, wrote an article in Christianity Today and he said that his landlady in Great Britain had a sign on the wall and her sign said, Why pray when you can worry? I think some of you have made that choice, right? Right? 